And today we have a special guest. We're going to take a little detour from our first 500-year series uh, to bring on Ben Bollinger. Um, you may or may not know him, but if you run in my Facebook circles or if you are stuck in Meta's algorithm that matches mine, you've probably bumped into him. Um, but uh, Ben, you uh, came from an Orthodox background and came into the Catholic Church uh, this last year. So we thought that would be really uh, an interesting journey to explore for our followers and our subscribers. So really, really thrilled to have you on. Welcome to the channel. Yeah, thank you. I'm All excited right. to talk about it. Um, so before we get into the content, I did want to do a little plug for one of our subscribers who um, – developed uh, this website called The Sacrament of Penance, all just one word, thesacramentofpenance.org. So if you ever feel an aversion to going to the sacrament of confession because maybe you're an introvert or maybe you're shy or maybe you're just like, dude, I don't remember what how that goes or what to say or when the priest says what, believe me, I've had the same issue and I have sweated before about it. So he made this awesome website for um, all laymen where you can go and see not only the um, the new rite of confession and kind of get a lot of content for preparing as well. There's examination of conscience and all these different things. He also has the traditional rite in there as well in case you go to a TLM parish and maybe you're, you've never really done a confession in, in that parish. Um, and then he has this really cool thing where he has a simplified rubric version so that you can literally just like instead of being interrupted by paragraphs of rubrics, you can just see, OK, priest says this. I say this priest says this. And it makes it a lot easier and more accessible. And it's really cool because at the at the bottom of the homepage is all of these resources. He has like uh, links to classic thinkers, um, catechesis resources books, um, educational resources. He even has um, links to different like retreats and pilgrimages. So take a look at that. It's thesacramentofpenance.org. Awesome. Dan. Cool. Yeah, so uh, when we were first uh, speaking with Ben uh, about uh, doing this episode, he had mentioned that uh, St. Thomas Aquinas was uh, instrumental in his own life and so we're recording on the memorial or feast of saint thomas aquinas so i thought we'd start with uh, a collect for today before we begin how about that awesome cool this is from um, a divine worship daily office from the ordinary actually in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit Everlasting God, who didst enrich thy church with the learning and holiness of thy servant, St. Thomas Aquinas, grant to all who seek thee a humble mind and a pure heart, that they may know thy Son, Jesus Christ, to be the way, the truth, and the life, who liveth and reigneth with thee, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, ever one God, world without end. Amen. Great. Well, that's, that's a way better intro than what I had planned. Um, so... <laughs> <laughs> so here's the thing. So we um, we have a lot of Orthodox subscribers to our channel. Uh, I have, I mean, half of my family is Orthodox, uh, a lot of Orthodox friends. So one thing I want to say from the get-go is that this episode is in no way intended to uh, convert Orthodox people today or, or to, um, you know, disparage Orthodoxy or anything or any of the, the beautiful gifts that, um, that those churches bring to the church. So I just want to say that right out of the gate. The thing is, we we inherited the faith from the fathers of the church, and that's beautiful. It's it's great. We all inherited it. It's our common inheritance. 
But there's another shadow side to that, and there's a common inheritance of our father's sins as well, and that's the schism. They left to us <laughs> the schism that they uh, created. So, you know, in an ideal world, no layman should ever have to choose between the Eastern churches, uh, the Eastern Orthodox churches, and the, the Roman churches or the Byzantine Catholic churches, for that matter. We shouldn't have to be making these decisions. Um, it's, it's evidence of human sin um, that we even have to do that. So uh, a lot of people have struggled with that decision. I know I did in my own life. Dan, you know, you had your own struggles. Ben, of course, you've had yours uh, navigating these issues. And, and people come out on different sides of this. Um, but, you know, the goal of this is just to understand, Ben, how you came to your side. Um, because, like I said uh, before we came on camera, especially under the, the Francis pontificate, which, regardless of anyone's opinion of it, of it um, the trend... <laughs> that I've seen in my own personal sphere is that people have moved out of the Catholic church into orthodoxy. So it is interesting to see in this last year that uh, you've gone the opposite direction, uh, kind of the same way that Dan and I did. We came in under the Francis pontificate. Um, so I think this will be a really interesting conversation, but I want to set the stage that way. And with that said, I do want to kind of get a little bit out of your way. Um, and I, how about you start with just like a general uh, introduction to like, what was your upbringing like? Was it, was it Christian? And then how did you kind of come to Christ? Uh, we'll kind of start there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And thank you for that introduction. Yeah. I fully agree that I don't want this to be some kind of like slam dunk on the Orthodox. Um, I mean, I have Lots of friends who are. <laughs> I got to throw my notes out then. <laughs> yeah, you know, I still have lots of friends yeah. in the Orthodox Church. And I mean, I, I received, I mean, as I'll, I'll go into, I, I have, I really have nothing bad to say about my experience in the Orthodox Church. Um, it was, it was great. Now I'll, I'll go into that a little bit. But, uh, but yeah, a little background on my becoming a Christian, my Christian upbringing. So I was raised in the Lutheran Church. Um, I was uh, baptized into Christ when I was two months old. I don't have the baptismal certificate, but I have uh, witness testimony to it, so I'm very good. fine with that. <laughs> nice. <laughs> two witnesses? Uh, yeah, oh, I have like good. three witnesses, so we're all good. <laughs> good. <laughs> yes. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so I was raised in kind of like a, a nominally Lutheran household. I mean, we went to church quite a bit when I was like a little, little kid because I went to preschool at the Lutheran church. Um, but it was nothing too serious. We kind of like bounced around to different like churches, like Lutheran churches, Baptist churches for a while. Um, but, you know, by the time I got to middle school, I was pretty much like not religious anymore. I remember I, I talked to someone on the, the school bus who asked me, he's like, why do you believe in God? And I'm like, you know, I guess I don't because I didn't have any reasons for believing in God. And so I like quickly became like an atheist in middle school. And, um, and then from there, I kind of just like, I became like a very militant atheist too. So I was like one of those annoying people on like this app called iFunny, which is like a really dumb <laughs> app. And uh, I had like- This is in middle school? This is in middle I school, never, yeah. I've never had <laughs> a middle school atheist, wow. Middle school atheist, yeah, like, like yeah, well. And so I had an iFunny account for atheism. And then I, I kind of moved away from caring about religion at all. And I moved like more into like politics and, you know, I kind of made that like my whole life. And I was like just bouncing around to different political worldviews. Like one day I'm a libertarian, the next day I'm like a Marxist, you know, kind of bouncing around there. Um, and that was until I got to high school, uh, specifically my junior year of high school, which, you know, you can imagine that someone who 
is living a lot of their life online in politics as a kid isn't like the most sociable person in the world. So I didn't have a lot of like friends and social experiences. And so my junior year of high school is when I had like my first experience with like heartbreak. And, you know, it's, it's a, you know, it's the age old story, you know, heartbreak. And that leads to me being more open to God. And what was also interesting, what that was happening during that time is a lot of people in the political community were like becoming Catholic and Orthodox. And I, at that, at that point, I really had like no idea. I mean, I knew like what Catholicism was. I kind of knew what Orthodoxy was, but like all these people that I like was following were like starting to become what year is this? like religious. And I thought that was, okay, that's interesting. Yeah. And th this was like back in like uh, 2017, this was happening. Uh, at least the people yeah. in the spheres I was running in were like all starting to become religious. And there was like one guy I was following on YouTube who became Catholic and he made like a video about like the book of Deuteronomy or something. And I remember just watching and being like, oh, this is something. And that's kind of what got like YouTube to start recommending videos to my feed that were kind of like religious. <laughs> and uh, one of the videos they recommended was a video by Classical Theist, if you know who that is on YouTube. Um, he made a video called An Argument for the Existence of God. And I thought that was interesting. I just, I clicked on it, I watched it, and he went through St. Thomas's argument from motion uh, for the existence of God. Mm. And I remember watching that, and by the end of it, I was like, I have no <laughs> idea what he just said. Like, I was like, so... <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Yeah, I was so but, it, but that's But that's great, right? Yeah, no, it was... That, that's like, that's a, people's, a, lot of, a lot of people's experience, right? That like, they come, they think the, that belief in God is stupid or, or dumbed down or something, but then they come up against a great theologian and they're like, oh, wait a minute, I guess I'm not as smart as I thought. Yes. And what was interesting is usually that would like, you know, be a, a nick at my pride and like, that would like affect me in a negative way, but it actually like intrigued me. It made me interested. It made me like, oh, maybe there is more to this. And at that point, like I said, you know, going through heartbreak, I was kind of more open to like, you know, the mm -hmm. meaning of life, stuff like that. And so that's why I came across another video by another Catholic YouTuber named Mathema. He basically went through the same argument, but kind of like dumbed it down a little bit and like, you know, gave nice little pictures that I could follow along with. And I actually understood the argument. And I remember by the end of that video, I was like, well, shoot, I guess God's real. That's crazy. And so I, I <laughs> you know, I, it was uh, St. Thomas's argument from motion, like the argument nice. from contingency, um, mm. you know, and I was, yeah, that's how I came oh, shucks, to there's a God in God. <laughs> so, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, so it, it, you don't have to answer if you don't want to, but the, the heartbreak you're talking about, is this over uh, like a female heartbreak or is this like a, a, a death in the family heartbreak or what kind oh, of... Oh, yeah, it, it was with, okay. with a girl. Yeah, I should probably gotcha. specify that. Yeah. Yeah. Many a heartbreak mm -hmm. <laughs> leading to the faith. Yep, it's it's so true, the age-old story. So you, you're making kind of a um, an emotional and a rational move kind of simultaneously. I. It, Usually there's like when those horses are racing, one is a little bit ahead of the other at this phase in your life was the rational a little bit ahead of the, the emotional. I think so. I mean, it's hard for me to tell, you know, it happened a while ago and it's like when your emotions and your head are like mixed together, it's hard to tell, but it was definitely my experience of it yeah. was more like intellectual, but it was like intellectual almost in like a spiritual way in the way of like the intellect being like purified mm. with the knowledge of God and like really seeing like like when i came to like intellectually know who god was like that was like a profound spiritual mm. experience for me like i remember i read david bentley hart's mm. book the experience of god which is like a very like philosophical technical book but like that was like a profound like spiritual experience yeah. for me reading that book was because just like the way he was describing god it felt like i was like meeting him for the first time of really understanding like that god is not just a good 
being, but he is goodness. He's not just a beautiful being. Oh, he is beauty. Yeah. Like that just really spoke to me. And like that spoke like to my mind, but also to my heart. So they're very connected. That's, did you did you have uh, already a good background, uh, perhaps um, outside of high school, I suppose, uh, in uh, philosophy and theology, uh, anything like that? Or were you just coming to this kind of fresh this was like totally brand new to me so like i had no okay. serious philosophical background i kind of like posed as a pseudo intellectual on like issues of economics and politics you know <laughs> like like every atheist. like every atheist yeah and of course you know i had the superficial like i read or i i watched David, or, oh, yeah. uh, richard dawkins the god delusion video series um mm. although I, I will say i remember watching that video for the first time and he went to a Catholic pilgrimage site and he's like, yeah, there's millions of people who come here and there's only like five miracles that happen every year. I'm like, what do you mean five miracles happen every year? Doesn't <laughs> 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 there be zero? Anyways, that's a bit of a So um, at this time, um, so, okay, the, the, yeah, you're, you're learning. Are you, what's your prayer life like at this time? Yeah, so, so I was like, when I was introduced to God, it was like Catholics who were telling me about God. And so I realized like, okay, I have a lot of things I'm doing in my life that I probably shouldn't be doing. And I don't have any religious family or friends. So I don't really know like what to do or where to go. But I'm like, well, these guys are Catholic. St. Thomas is Catholic. So I guess I should start looking into the Catholic Church. And, uh, and so, you know, I started reading up on like, you know, Catholic theology. And I would also be, I was like looking up like Catholic prayers and stuff. So my, my prayer life was basically like me like googling like catholic prayers and like basically like what i found out later were the psalms is actually what i was praying a lot of um and uh so so that's what i was doing it was it was largely you know like i said i had no real like foundation in the real world so i just kind of had to rely on my own searching of the internet to find stuff i'm like very that. surprised how quickly mm -hmm. you accelerated though i mean it that, that that is that's that's fast because um even for myself like uh you know became evangelical i kind of had the born again experience when I, was, when I was pretty young um and gosh i didn't start praying the psalms or like the daily office or any of that kind of stuff until many many years later so it's it's interesting that you jumped into that that quickly um yeah, it was. I, I was also, still doing like, like Lord, we just like right. I mean, like you know, <laughs> <laughs> I I also like. I mean, you know, this was like after like a, a month or so after I like first encountered the arguments for God's existence, and I was reading up on Catholic theology. I found people like you know Brant Petrie, mm -hmm. Scott Hahn. I found like EWTN. Mm -hmm. I found like Catholic Answers, like all the Catholic apologetics kind of stuff. And I actually ended up buying. Uh, I bought two things, which I still have. I bought an icon of Our Lord. And then I bought uh, a statue of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Well, and, choose uh, one. And so I would like <laughs> pray in front of those. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And uh, so that, that was kind of like my, my prayer uh, corner that hmm. I set up. So it's, it's interesting because uh, to go back to, to add on to what Steve was getting at. So, you know, it, it was through knowledge that you your mind kind of becomes purified or whatever. Uh, but did you see it? it in your conversion, I guess, uh, an immediate connection between knowing God and ethics and morality. Mm. Like, was that almost immediate where you, where you thought, okay, if I believe in God, something has to change in my life or did that come later? It was, well, my acceptance of God's existence was pretty close to my acceptance of Christianity because I figured like, okay, 
it really didn't make sense to me if God existed, if like just there was no religion that was true. Like it seems to me to make sense that if God is real, that there has to be some kind of religion that he yeah. revealed to mankind. Yeah, self-revelation. And actually, mm -hmm. Mathema and Classical Theist did a video together where they kind of went through how, like, we would, we can't prove Christianity philosophically, right? It's a revealed religion. But we can, like, philosophically approximate certain things, like how God, you know, he's naturally self-diffusive. So he would probably do something to unite himself to us in a very mm -hmm. perfect way. And that's what the incarnation is. And he would allow us to share in that incarnate life. And that's, you know, the church and her sacraments. And so for me, like, the truth of God's existence and the truth of like the of like you know, the claims of Christianity and specifically like Catholic Christianity um, were really mm -hmm. uh, together. And um, and on top of that, I was also introduced to like you know Brant Petrie, who really like did a lot to convince me of like the divine inspiration of the Bible, like because he showed like you know, mm. the typologies between like Christ and the Old Testament, especially with stories like you know the sacrifice of Isaac. And just seeing those parallels, I was just like, wow, there, there really does seem to be something mm -hmm. behind all of this. Um, and so, so the, and obviously, you know, once I have the Christ Christianity, the morality kind of flows naturally from that. Um, so, so I guess they were, they were pretty, pretty closely linked together. You know, I, I Steve, you know, I, I brought that up because I, I, if I'm recalling our story very quickly, um, the morality came later. It's almost like, because, but we entered things yeah. through the Bible, right? So we were, we entered through reading St. Paul and uh, I think um, I think the way you came, Ben, is you were more you were looking at theologians already, <laughs> and, the, and theologians already speaking to you. Mm -hmm. um, so it's like a little bit of a difference. I think an evangelical experience through the Bible, we kind of had to learn slowly. Okay, your life does have to actually change. <laughs> um, but yours almost right away. There's an instant connection, which is which is interesting. So I've heard Aquinas, I've heard Petrie, Scott Hahn. Um, how did you go from that track, which which is clearly very Catholic, to how did you get introduced to the East and start flirting with the East? Yes. So that happened. So like at this point, you know, this is like a couple months into this, is like December 2017. This is like when I'm first coming to Christianity and reading about St. Thomas, reading about the Catholic faith. And, you know, I, I quickly, like, I'm like, okay, Protestantism's clearly not it. Like, you know, I, I kind of just set that one did aside really? pretty quickly. But I started reading. I did. Why, why, well, why, why was, but why? It was, well, it was basically like, you know, I mean, I, I kind of like was introduced right away to Catholic apologetics and just made a lot of sense to me. Like their teachings on justification, you know, when I was reading like Paul and James, I, I really just wasn't mm. seeing the Protestant doctrine of justification. I I was understanding, like, you know, apostolic succession just made a lot of, like, intuitive sense to me. Like, you know, it, it wasn't, like, the most intellectually rigorous decision to set mm. aside Protestantism. It just kind of was, like, something I intuited. I'm like, you know, Catholicism just has, like, the history behind it, has that tradition. And obviously, you know, I, I fell in love with the writings of St. Mm. Thomas. And, you know, he just has an answer for everything uh, in the Summa Theologiae. So <laughs> I was like, you know, that, that's, that was, like, enough for me. You know, once again, I'm not saying that was, like, super intellectually rigorous, um, but that was just kind of my intuition. I'm like, okay, well, it seems to me like if Christianity is true, it's going to be like Catholicism. Um, and that was especially, and that kind of goes mm -hmm. into like my discovery of orthodoxy was because I was also reading the blog of Eric Ybarra. Um, and I'm sure you're yeah. familiar with Eric's work. I mean, he's probably like the best of papal apologetics you can get. And I was exposed to his writings like right off the bat. And he's actually how I got introduced to Eastern Orthodoxy. 
um, because obviously he ba- this is back in like 2018. He's so you know, writing a I lot can, about. I can uh, give Eric crap about... then for this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Yes, yes, <laughs> but he he has a redemption arc. He has a redemption arc. Um, but yes, yeah, so <laughs> yeah, so. It was largely through the writings of Eric Ibarra that I figured out what orthodoxy was. And, and, you know, to be honest, when I first encountered orthodoxy, I, like, didn't buy it. Like, I, I was reading Eric's responses to certain orthodox writers. Like, he had a lot of back-and-forth articles with, like, Craig Trulia, and he was, like, responding to a bunch of, like, orthodox scholars, like, um, Tom, or something, Michael Welton, mm-hmm. you know, his Two Paths uh, book. He had some videos or podcasts about that. And I found his stuff very compelling. Um, and so, like, right off the bat, I was, like you know, leaning Catholic, you know, like when I read something like, you know, the statement from Philip the Legate of the Third Ecumenical Council, which says, you know, divine institution of the papacy, Peter, Pope, you know, Mm. all that stuff made sense to me. But what got me to start taking uh, orthodoxy a little bit more seriously was when I started uh, going to mass on Sunday. Um, I... (laughs) I went to. Uh, the- Sorry, where'd you go? <laughs> yeah, I went to my. Yeah, I went to my local Novus Ordo parish um, because you know this is like a first few months. I'm like, I'm like, yeah, like rah 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 Catholicism, all true. It's the best. But I wasn't like actually going to mass. You know, I was kind of just like doing a do it yourself. I'm like, okay, I have to like go to mass. Like I have to actually stop like just reading and just like start going to mass. And so I just went to like you know I'm like oh there's a Catholic church like five minutes away from me. So I went I went there. And, you know, I, I didn't have a terrible experience, but it was just, it was a little bit, it reminded me a lot of my, like, Protestant upbringing. And, you know, and I, my Protestant upbringing, like, wasn't, it was, like, nominal, right? But, like, I didn't like it. And it just, it, like, was very off-putting to me. And on top of that, I mean, keep in mind, you know, I am still, like, the socially awkward teenager who was just heavily involved in online politics and had no social life. And so when I'm going to, like, this strange place where there's all these people and not a single person comes up to me and says, Hey, what are you, who, who are you? Hi, how can I help you? And like, you know, and everyone's like doing all this weird stuff that I don't know what they're doing. You know, it just, it just was very mm-hmm. off putting to me and it just gave me like a very like negative experience. And so even though, so there was like this disconnect between like, I was really loving like what I was reading about the Catholic faith, but my actual real life experience with it was like lacking and it was just i just wasn't getting what i felt like i should be getting you know which is like you know very subjective Mm. but like i just felt like there's something missing here that was kind of my my then that's what pushed me kind of towards looking into uh, orthodoxy more it's like okay maybe maybe there is something to their objections even though i can't see it intellectually i can kind of like feel it and so a a, a pause Mm. there for a second uh back to something you said previously that kind of strikes me when i'm thinking about it when you said that you kind of started with Thomas Aquinas, right? So if you're starting with Thomas Aquinas and then you go and read <clears throat> Calvin, like Luther, I can see now how that would be less convincing, um, especially if you've really <laughs> read Thomas Aquinas, like if you're really reading it. Um, because one of the things that kind of struck me after coming out of Protestantism and for the first time, honestly, yeah, like reading Thomas Aquinas after being a Protestant and stuff um, when Dan and I had, we had like a really great seminar on the Reformation um, in our graduate school uh, experience. And just in that class, we dove so deep into like Reformation sources and history and all that. And, and I think we really left that class with a bad taste in our mouth um, for a lot of what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's funny because you don't realize just how um, 
redundant. I don't know. Like, or something like, like the, what the Protestants are saying, it's kind of like, that's kind of already been addressed like a lot. Like, like a lot, a lot, you know, like, like, like justification yeah. is already kind of been talked about and addressed, you know? Um, and, and yeah, it's true. But, but see, if, if you're not exposed yeah. to Thomas Aquinas and, and, and a lot of times Protestant polemic will start by saying that, you know, oh, they always have that, that whole story of like the West becomes very rationalistic. You have the nominalist school, you have, you know, this uh, scholasticism, Thomas Aquinas, somehow they link like Thomas Aquinas, like directly to that. And then, and then they start their thing right <laughs> and you're like yeah see and getting back to the bible and getting away from this this cold rationalism and stuff but you look back at it and you're like looking at thomas aquinas and you're like that's not at all like thomas aquinas you know like in fact mm -hmm. you're you're sometimes even struck um by how eastern thomas can sound um at, at many turns um mm. and i think a lot of eastern catholics yes. appreciate that there's a lot of eastern catholics who do appreciate thomas aquinas for that um now at this point in your journey though is is eastern catholicism like not even on your radar like you don't even know anything about it or is it something that you knew about but didn't buy it or something that is a great great question because it was i because like yeah i was kind of like i was kind of thinking i'm like okay so i i really like you know, I, I don't see orthodoxy intellectually, like, at all. Like, I am not convinced. Like, I, I read the orthodox blogs. Like, I was reading, like, Craig Trulia's blog, this blog called Shameless Orthodoxy. And granted, I mean, they're all, you know, internet blogs, not serious scholarship. But, you know, I'm I'm a teenager. No. Give me some, give me no. some slack there. Um, and so, <laughs> and so I, I wasn't, you know, I was reading these. And then just, like, all their arguments, like, oh, well, Peter's not really the rock of the church. I'm like, clearly they haven't engaged with, like, what I'm seeing in Catholic apologetics. Like these people have not seen the mm -hmm. best of what Catholicism has to offer. And that was just very apparent to me. So I did look into Eastern Catholicism and I actually did visit an Eastern Catholic church near my house. Um, and I have to say though, I had a awful experience at the liturgy there. Um, it was like just the people just treated me very poorly and it just, you know, left a very sour Oops. taste in my mouth. And I just, I never went, yeah, I never went back to it. And so, you know, once again, you know, we're, we're not purely intellectual mm -hmm. beings, you know, our experiences and emotions have a great impact on us. And so that just kind of like drove me away from like going towards the Eastern tradition. That even like put me off when I was start, starting to look into Orthodoxy that left a sour taste. In yeah, my mouth it's like somebody can, somebody can tell you that, hey, um, it turns out this is your home over here. Um, this is like your family's house. The DNA tells us mm -hmm. this is where you live. And then you go there and it's like a crack house or something. <laughs> You're like, OK, yeah, that's great. Maybe that is, you know, where I should be or something. But I'm not going yeah. to stake my my claim here. You know, I'm not going to live my life here. So, I, yeah, there's right. there is. I had that. I had a lot of similar experiences, too, um, where it was very much on that more um, not objective, but, you know, subjective level. But that's important, right? Like, it is important. Yes, it is. But you, you, so you'd say, you'd, you'd say then you started to visit Orthodox liturgies, and it was the liturgy itself that felt like, well, wait a minute, maybe this matches up with Catholic theology, actually? The depth of Catholic theology? It's mm -hmm. like, this is almost the liturgy I should have been getting? That, it was, yeah. So basically, like, you know, I was very disillusioned with Catholicism. I, I even attended, you know, a Latin Mass in Chicago uh, once, and I still, like, I mean, it was beautiful, but, like, once again, I... Nobody came up to me. Nobody talked to me. It was just a very, like, I felt very alone in the Catholic Church. I felt like I had no place. And so kind of in, like, an act of, like, desperation almost, because, like, I could feel myself, like, spiritually slipping. And I didn't want to. You know, I wanted to live the Christian life. You know, I, I really wanted to. And so I kind of, like, in an act of desperation, I sent out, like, emails to, like, Orthodox priests in my area just asking if they wanted to, like, get together and talk. And, uh, and one 
Orthodox priest got back to me. Actually, it turns out one of the Orthodox priests I messaged was an Oriental Orthodox priest, which I had no nice. idea what that was at the time. Um, but that's <laughs> an interesting uh, caveat there. But but it was uh, yeah. an Eastern Orthodox priest who got back to me, who actually himself was a, a convert from like Baptist Protestantism, um, and and that's and he invited me to come talk with him. And and yeah, so I, I drove over there, and I, I remember I vividly remember like driving over there, thinking like I am not going to become Orthodox. Like I have no desire, like I, I don't believe in the Orthodox doctrines. Like I, I was aware at the time of what they were, their objections to like the papacy, you know, which in my mind, the papacy was like the only difference between mm -hmm. Orthodox and Catholicism. Um, Cause I, yeah. you know, once again, yeah. teenager, don't know everything. Um, and so I drive over there, I'm wearing my like St. Benedict crucifix around my neck. And, uh, and I talk with my pre with uh, the man who had become my Orthodox priest. And, uh, and you know, I'll, I'll be honest, I, um, we had a conversation and it, it, I was kind of, I was hoping I'd be like wowed by it. Like that I would, you know, that he would tell me something and it, like, it would just all click. And, but that wasn't really the case, but he did invite me to come to the liturgy. Um, and you know, I, like I said, I was a little hesitant because of that experience I had at the Eastern Catholic liturgy. Um, and I initially didn't go, but I went the following week. And as soon as I get to the liturgy, you know, his, his wife like greets me at the beginning and like hands me like a binder and she's like, oh, you see, there's a catechumen over there. Why don't you go sit next to him? He'll help you through the service. So like already like five minutes in, I've had like more human interaction in an Orthodox church than I did in like my entire time in the Catholic church, um, you know, mm -hmm. and that just, that really like spoke to me. And then, yeah, like, it's exactly like you, what you said. Like when I went to that liturgy, it felt like, like what I was reading about was finally like present mm -hmm. in like what I was experiencing, like that the there was like this fullness of the liturgy um, and... And so, yeah, and then, of course, you know, the community was just so welcoming. It was almost, like, very overwhelming because, like, I had gone from, like, experiencing nothing of, like, what a Christian community is supposed to be like to, like, seeing, like, what is, what I later found out. I mean, over the years, I would learn that this parish really is something special, like, in terms of, like, dedication to community, liturgy. I mean, it, it is better than even the majority of Orthodox churches I've been to in the country. And, of course, I didn't know that at the time. Um, and this, so it was like probably the best, like first impression of orthodoxy I could have possibly gotten. And, um, so, yeah, well, let that be a lesson to all our, you know, uh, our priests and pastors out there that, you know, just the, a warm welcome to the liturgy, come and see kind of mentality that, and, and, you know, to your point, when, uh, when I came back into the church, um, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't our priests, uh, coming up with some, you know, great wisdom right some turn of phrase or whatever it, it was it was just the attitude of um rest in the knowledge of the church right and yeah. and just come mm -hmm. back come come worship with us and it, it, it you know because i think for some people who are who come to the faith intellectually like clearly uh, uh, the three of us had that kind of journey we're intellectually first right um there comes a point where it's like that has to go away, and all I want is Christ and his and his church, basically. And so, the lesson in that is, you know, priests and pastors, the, a simple invite can do so much. Yeah. Obviously, in your case here, ben yeah. Too. There's a point yes. at which, like we said before, where um, naked rationality can only get you to this precipice where you then have to seek out, like, okay, which religion is the one that that this God self revealed Himself? But then you get to another point on the far end of Revelation. Where now you're like, now I need to make a choice on the side of revelation. You're like, where, where do I go and what do I do? And sometimes the subjective can take over a little bit. 
um, in a good way. And I don't mean in a bad way. I mean like in a good yeah. way. So at this point then, now that you're sort of swimming a little bit with, with orthodoxy, um, so you haven't become more orthodox yet. You're just still kind of like you're just attending weekly. Okay. Yes. Yes. And you said this is a, this is an Oriental Orthodox. Oh church? no, this this is Eastern Orthodox Church. Okay. I just said. Okay. Yeah, so, um, okay. is is it at this point then that you encounter better Orthodox apologetics like you know Florovsky or like Sergius Bulkakov or like Schmeyman or even modern like um, one of my faves is um, Father uh, Reardon Patrick Patrick Reardon. Yeah. So like, um, were you now swimming in like better Orthodox thinkers? Yeah. So, so I, I was just, you know, as soon as I had that experience of the Orthodox liturgy, I just never stopped going. I just kept going back week after week, even though I wasn't like fully into like intellectually, I was still very convinced of the Catholic faith. You know, I was still very like, I don't see how Orthodoxy is true, but I'm just going to keep going because I want to figure that out. And, and yeah, and eventually my priest, uh, he asked me, he's like, do you want to become a catechumen? And I'm like, sure. And he gave me, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm like, sure, why not? Sure. <laughs> and, uh, and he had me read uh, Vladimir Lasky's book, Dogmatic Theology. And I also bought a copy of uh, Father Bulgakov's uh, The Orthodox Church, which uh, I read through a bit of that. And, um, and I, I will say, you know, it definitely, you know, exposed me to a little bit more in-depth mm-hmm. Orthodox theology, which I appreciated. But I, I was, you know, I was so hung up on this issue of like ecclesiology and the papacy that I, I remember like when I came across Lasky's section on ecclesiology, I got very excited. I'm like, okay, this is finally going to be it. I'm going to finally get the answer to all this stuff. And I remember being kind of disappointed by the things he had to say about it. Same with uh, Father Bulgakov. I didn't really find his address of these issues to be that persuasive. It wasn't until really after I was chrismated in the Orthodox Church, I'd say maybe like a couple months or maybe a year afterwards, that I finally found uh, Father Laurent Cleanwork's book, His Broken Body, um, which I think is, it, which was really like the first very serious, like, Orthodox response to Catholic ecclesiology. That, that didn't just try to, like, tear down Catholic ecclesiology, but also tried to, like, build up an Orthodox, hmm. uh, a positive Orthodox I've never heard. I've never heard of that um, one. So. Never, I've never heard that book. Yeah, that, that was a book that was probably the most formative uh, for me as, you know, in my uh, journey through ecclesiology. So you kind of take, is, is it after that then that you take orthodoxy by the horns then and you're, you're really, you're going to, you're going to commit to this? Yeah, well, the thing is I, so I pretty much decided that I'm going to become orthodox before I was fully intellectually convinced of it, um, you know, which like I said, you know, I'm not a, I'm not just a purely rational being. Like I, I fell in love with this parish community, with this liturgy. And, you know, I just figured like, you know, something this good and beautiful, I can't, you know, can't, can't hurt. And that's kind of the basic, the way I was thinking of it. And I, I basically, I really just didn't want to become Catholic at that point. I had no desire to become Catholic. I just wanted to become Orthodox because I wanted to join this Orthodox community that I was just coming to know and love. Mm. And, um, and so, yeah, so I really did, I would say I did join like before I really like was firmly convicted of the truthfulness of orthodoxy, I would say that. So my, my actual like conviction of like the truthfulness of orthodoxy definitely came like a couple months or almost, almost even like a full year after my conversion to orthodoxy, when I found books like Father Lauren Cleanworks, uh, His Broken Body, and then also Dr. Edward Shashensky's, uh The Filioque History of a Doctrinal Controversy. Um, and also that's when I discovered the writings of Seraphim Hamilton, if you're familiar with him at all. He was also very formative in my uh, 
uh, orthodox theological thinking. Um, so, so yeah. um, as far as your involvement then with this orthodox parish, what did that look like? Were you just you just a dude in the pews, or what, what were you? What were you doing? <laughs> oh no, I was like as soon as I. <laughs> there were no pews. He was standing. <laughs> Very good. That's right. All is standing. Um, but no, I, as soon as I was chrismated, so I was chrismated in, uh, 2019 on the Saturday of St. Lazarus, April 20th. And, um, that, as soon as that happened, you know, I became an altar server. I started chanting. Um, so they taught me like how to, this church like focused a lot on congregational singing and like chanting and like a lot of emphasis would put on that. So I was like taught how to sing how to chant. I was also briefly a Sunday school teacher for a time. So I was very involved with this. Wow. They put you to work quick. Yes. <laughs> yes, they did. Uh, so when you say congregational singing, what, what do you mean by that? Um, like, like we really felt like the choir would be like with the people, like in the congregation. And then like, it was very mm -hmm. encouraged for like the people to like, everyone had all the music. It was very encouraged for everyone to like sing oh. and, you know, the best way they could because, yeah, we had a lot of very musically gifted people at that parish. Um, and so there was yeah. a lot of, oh, that's, yeah. a, and that's a my blessing. experience yeah. of orthodoxy. <laughs> like when I was in, uh, Greek churches was that nobody, nobody does any of the responses or sings or anything. It's literally just the reader and the, the reader and the priest yep. like going back and forth. And, and then the people just like doing their cross at the yeah. right times. And, um, some people would do like the, uh, yeah. Amen, like, <laughs> they kind of they kind of get one out um but it was more a, like a low whisper or a hum or something but i have also been to um some orthodox churches like i, I went to a syriac church once where the singing was like i mean they were going to tear mm. the roof off this place and then um some byzantine catholic <laughs> churches especially the ruthanians they tend to sing like you know really well yeah. congregationally um it's super beautiful though i i mean totally i i, I know exactly like how you were feeling because there were so many times where i was you know, at an Orthodox church, Orthodox parish, like especially my, my, my wife's um, at the time, her Greek parish, whenever I was there, I was just profoundly moved um, just by the by the ethos yes. of the East. I it's not even just like that, you know, like a, a self-hating Westerner who like just wants to have this exotic experience because I know there's a lot of that. That's not what it was for yeah. me. It was it was like even in spite of like the cultural stuff, there was just something about the candor. Um, it's very masculine. Mm -hmm. Like the priests, when they chant, are men, yes. you know? And the women, when they chant, are women. Mm -hmm. And um, the music is like, yes. who, who gives a crap if we have, an, you know, musical instruments? We're just going to use our voices, you know? And, and the, pra the, the, the wording <laughs> of the prayers, saying everything three times, it's just, it feels like you're in the temple. But at the same time, orthodoxy has this way of making you feel like you're in the living room, like you're in a, a house, you know, so they, they've carried on the ethos of a house yeah. church, but also a temple. So it's like those two things, and especially when you're studying patristics, like me and Dan and stuff, it's like, wow, mm -hmm. like, you know, this, this is it, you know? Um, yes. But again, it's like gnawing at you is some of those more doctrinal, dogmatic, and, and you know, like those kinds of questions, those intellectual questions. So how did you begin yeah. the journey, the intellectual journey out of orthodoxy. I mean, don't take us out of orthodoxy yet. I mean, keep us, keep us where you're at, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, but, um, keep but us what, there, baby. Keep us there. Yeah. But yes. what were some of those Let's um, marinate in it. movements intellectually while you're in the Orthodox church? Yes. Yeah. So there's a lot, a lot, a lot that could be said there, but I guess I'll just start with, you know, like kind of like what I was going with, with my background. Like you can imagine that 
ecclesiology was a big issue for me. And, and, you know, like I said, you know, or like you were saying, you know, when you're in the middle of the divine liturgy and you're singing the cherubic hymn, you know, let us lay aside all earthly cares, you're, you're not going to care like what some bishop in the seventh century had to say about the Pope. Like you're not, you're just, that's not, that's not on your mind, <laughs> <Yes>. you know, <laughs> it's, it's the other six days a week where that's what's going through your head. And I, I remember, you know, I did find answers to, you know, certain objections from Catholicism, you know, like people like Sarah from Hamilton, Ubi Petrus, Father Laurent Cleanwork, you know, they kind of provided a, a framework for me to think about, you know, St. Peter is, you know, all the bishops are, be, are the successors of St. Peter and like, you know, each local bishop is like the Peter of his diocese, which the, with the apostles formed around him and all this. But it was really around like 2020, like when the COVID pandemic hit and, you know, we kind of like went through lockdown and I wasn't as active in my parish community because of all the restrictions and stuff. And I was kind of just left with like me and the faith, you know, like, and like I t take away all the smells and bells, you take away all the beauty as, as great and wonderful as those things are, you know, that's not the substance of the faith. And so 2020 is really when I was left with just the substance of orthodoxy taken away from all its beauty and glory in that you see in the real world and just left with what does actually teach. And I was confronted once again with some of the texts that made me very convinced of Catholicism, uh, namely among them being like the letter of Pope St. Agatho uh, to the Sixth Ecumenical Council, mm -hmm. where Agatho says in no uncertain terms that when our Lord stood in the flesh before St. Peter at Caesarea Philippi, he appointed him as the head of the church, and that is why the popes of Rome will be the leaders of the church until the end of time. And you see that same phrase, you see that exact same teaching at the Third Ecumenical Council with Philip the Legate, and in fact, he even says um, you know, as it has been known in all ages, that's the, when Vatican I says that, they're actually quoting Philip the Legate from the Third Ecumenical Council when they say that. Um, and like that just kind of like struck me. And what really struck me, I was also reading, you know, St. Maximus the Confessor, who was like this great Eastern saint who had a lot, you know, who kind of scores a lot of points on the Orthodox side of like the Filioque debate, you know, essence energy debate kind of thing. And here he is seeming to affirm the infallibility of the Apostolic See of Rome. And I'm like, well, that's interesting. <laughs> And, and same with, uh, you know, St. Theodore the Studite, um, also in his letter to Pope Pascal I, he's affirming in no uncertain terms that the Pope of Rome is, you know, that he will remain undefiled from heresy until the end of time and all this stuff. And, and that's against the backdrop of like the Seventh Ecumenical Council, where, you know, Pope Hadrian sends his letter, which proclaims almost stronger claims than Vatican I, I would say at the Seventh Ecumenical Council. I remember the first time I read the letter of Hadrian, I was shocked, like, wow, this was read out at an ecumenical council. And it's just stuff like that, that was like kind of like marinating um, in my mind. And, you know, it seems like all these Eastern and Western bishops are proclaiming this together. And so like when I was actually looking at like the substance of the faith, I was like, okay, this doesn't seem to be lining up with Orthodox ecclesiology. And that was deeply troubling to me. Um, and so that, that kind of is what got me to start, you know, reconsidering Catholicism again was just reading, just like reading the fathers and just seeing like, what are they actually saying about the papacy? And what are they actually saying about like some of these other issues I was coming to understand were dividing lines between orthodoxy and Catholicism, like the, you know, divine simplicity. Like, I mean, you know, obviously that's not like as dogmatic of an issue, I would say between orthodoxy and Catholicism, but I mean, in my honest reading of the fathers, I just could not see where they're getting this, where, where, where they condemn like Aquinas's divine simplicity as heretical. Like that's a very prominent view in the Orthodox Church. And I just, you know, when I read like St. Basil, 
I see, you know, absolute divine supply. I don't see any essence energy distinction in him. He seems very clear um, about, you know, the absolute simplicity of God, all this stuff. Mm. Mm. And um, so it's interesting. There's always and a, there were another. It, there's, there's always this come, come back another, to the sources kind of moment, I think, in conversions. And it's I mean, it's awesome. It's great. I commend you for going to the sources, but not sources I would have thought you were going to mention. <laughs> so it's very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's like these Orthodox champions and, uh, or Eastern champions are, are starting to convince you otherwise. Yes. And I will, I will say there was also like a lot of like turmoil within mm. the Orthodox, within like Orthodox theological dialogue that was getting me to second guess, specifically over the issue of what's called like sacramental rigorism. If you're familiar with that term at all, there's basically like this big debate in the Orthodox church over whether or not those outside of the Orthodox right. church have valid sacraments. And there's like a huge divide over this. Like there are large swaths of the Orthodox Church. And you're talking about today, right? This isn't the third century. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. This is this is a debate that goes back to right. the third century. You know, to the dispute between Cyprian and Stephen, and it's still being hashed out today. And that was something I found deeply troubling for a number of reasons. The first one being, of course, that. This was right. a settled issue, right? When, when St. Vincent de Lorenz is writing his commodatorium, he speaks of this as an example of the church, you know, having a doubt about a matter and coming to a definitive resolution about it. This is the example he cites is this very issue. Mm -hmm. And so like the fact that you have in the 18th century, an Eastern Orthodox council represented by three of the patriarchs, three of like the four patriarchs saying that Western baptisms are invalid, like that to me was quite striking. You know, and it was especially it was kind of personal to me as well, because there's this idea even among those in the Orthodox Church who believe that sacraments outside the church are valid. Those people do not believe that what's called single immersion mm -hmm. baptism is valid. So like, you know, Baptists, you know, when you only baptize with one immersion, they would say so someone like Father Daniel Sezoyev, who believed that like Catholics have valid baptisms, for instance, would say that like Baptists didn't have valid baptisms. And this is like the norm in Russia. They don't treat them as having valid baptisms. And that was troubling for me because my priest was a oh. Baptist convert. Mm. And so it got me to start questioning like, okay, well, does that mean he's not really a priest? And does that mean that I'm Ouch. not really Orthodox? Because there really is no, like, cause like, I, cause you know, yeah, if you read like certain canons from like the ecumenical councils, it does seem to say like single immersion baptisms, you know, you could make the argument from the Orthodox perspective that those are invalid. And I really had no response to that. And so it was raising also these questions of like authority over like, you know, who is the one who gets to authoritatively determine the truthfulness of these canons, you know, because when I was reading church history, it seems like, I mean, well, who is creating these canons? It's the church coming together in council and giving like very definitive solemn judgments about things. And like, yes, there have been councils in the Orthodox church, like, you know, the council of Jerusalem, 1672, the council of Jassy, 1642. Um, but nobody, most Orthodox Christians don't even know right. what those councils are. And they certainly don't treat them as like dogmatically binding on their theology. Mm. Like you'll be hard pressed to find like an Orthodox manual of theology that even like mm. cites those councils, like the way a Catholic theology manual will like cite the Council of Trent. Um, it just like the issue of authority was starting to come up a lot mm. for me because then I was at that, that kind of paired with my reading of all of these sources that talk about the papacy, the divine institution of the Bishop of Rome. And you know, that Christ established an apostolic college 
that has divine teaching authority, that has, you know, disciplinary authority, and that they can actually enact that, and they have throughout history. You know, all of that was just kind of coming together, and things were not looking very, like, good from the Orthodox one perspective. One of the things basically. that, <clears throat> one of the things that um, I'm glad that Eric Ybarra has brought up before, too, is when he, he, he always emphasizes, and he's, it's very, very wise to say this, is that there is no East or West in Christ. So, like, if, if I'm quoting yes. Pope Leo to you, for instance, I'm not quoting a Western saint. I'm quoting an Orthodox saint, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so all of these, all of these, like, Western yes. um, fathers, but even, even fathers in the East who for some reason are kind of considered Western <laughs> just because of their view of the papacy, you know? <laughs> and, um, but you're like, well, yeah, but these are Orthodox saints. They're on your calendar. So what do you say about it? So that's, that's kind of one mm -hmm. of the moves that Orthodox apologists will use is that they'll sort of like first break you off into those intellectual categories of East and West. And they'll say, okay, so if you quote any Western saint to me now, it's irrelevant. And I'm just going to keep quoting these over mm -hmm. here that are our buddies. You're like, well, yeah, but, it, but we're trying to prove yes. that the Catholic Church believed X, Y, or Z during this time, right? Um, mm -hmm. So that, that was, that's one thing that, that was really um, a good point that, that Eric brought up and struck me. And I, I'm glad you brought up rebaptism. Um, because I think that is a very good, and I know that at this point, like some Orthodox apologists will, like roll their eyes and be like, oh, you're going to bring that up. Right. But yeah, yeah. I'm going to bring that up. Like I'm legit going to bring that up because that's, that's a serious <laughs> issue. We're talking about like the, the heart of our faith, like getting baptized, you know, and, and, and you have to be able to make a decision yes. for the faithful on whose baptisms are valid and whose aren't. But, um, <laughs> see, this is the thing though, is that this is where the, it's a test case, like a laboratory, right? You have like, okay, or Orthodox, this is your great moment. You can't agree on something that is central to faith that the West has had a decision on for a long time. Go. And see, like, this is the conciliar mm -hmm. church, right? They make decisions through council. It's like, okay, who's going to call the council? How are you going to gather it? Can you gather mm -hmm. it? If you can't, how are you a conciliar church? Um, and, and for me, I, yes. I, like, right where you're at right now is like kind of, I was at that point too. And for me, there were two things that really came out. And, I, and speak to this if this, was, if this also like came to you. But it, it struck me that like orthodoxy has had different ideas about its own ecclesiology as time has gone on, whereas Rome has always claimed this crazy thing about itself, right? Like we can all agree that's a crazy <laughs> thing to say about yourself, you know? But it has always said it, <laughs> and it never stopped yeah. saying it, and it kept saying it, even when yeah. it seemed like, ridiculous to assert it they continued to really from the first from the first moment that a pope of rome is speaking to the world they're saying it yeah speaking in this way about yes. this office there's yes. just something about mm -hmm. whatever they inherited that yeah. they just were not going to let go of and in the east though you see this mm -hmm. move from like caesaro pape like a caesaro papal model um but then that gets dropped right and it's more like oh now we're like a conciliar model but then that gets dropped and now it's like autocephaly like self-governing churches mm. and so you're kind of like well wait like how could the ecclesiology of the church on this on a matter like this change and and they would sort of point you to well that's because the locus of the authority of authority in the church is the is the, the is the bishop with his priest and his deacons in his diocese right and St. Ignatius of Antioch. Right, right. And, and, and you can go with that, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you, you can go, okay. Like, I think it's John Zazulis who makes that argument about the bishop and his Eucharist, right? Like, that's, that's really the locus of authority. And everything else is sort yeah. of outward, right? Like, how we sort of structure how the bishops are going to get along with each other is sort of an outward thing, and that can change. But the thing is, though, 
you'll notice that they developed it from the bishop right to like this metropolitan level and then from the metropolitan to like this this patriarch level and then they stop and you're like so when the patriarchs come together mm. like, that that's it now like there's no like that doesn't continue that that idea of like a universal primate no way right um so that was something to me that I was like, all right, that's where that doesn't make sense to me. Was that kind of where you were at? Yeah, and I think it kind of ties into what you were saying earlier about, like, you know, there is no East, there is no West. Because cause you go back to the 3rd century. You go back to St. Stephen of Rome. And at least based on the testimony of St. Familian of Caesarea, we know that he claimed that because he holds the succession of Peter— on whom the foundations of the church were laid, that's why he has authority over territories that seem outside of his jurisdiction. And this is the same century that St. Cyprian says that the faith of the Romans' faithlessness could have no access to them, right? So he's saying whatever they believe at Rome, that's the Orthodox faith right there, right? You go back, you go to the 5th century, we have that profession of faith from Philip the Legate, right, where he ex explicitly, he gives the profession of faith that's quoted at Vatican I, about, you know, Bishop of Rome, successor of Peter. Now he says now and forever. He says forever the bishops of Rome, by the divine appointment of Christ, will be the leaders of the church. And St. Cyril of Alexandria himself says that that profession of faith stands manifest to the Holy Synod of Ephesus. That was St. Cyril of Alexandria, right? You go, and this is the, the fifth century. I mean, this is the same century that you have people like Theodore of Cyrus praising the faith of the Romans throughout the entire first millennium. Everyone is praising the faith of the Romans. Like, if you want to know what orthodoxy is, you look at what the Church of Rome is teaching. And yet, like you've been saying, you go to the 3rd century, the 5th century, the 6th century, especially by the time you get to popes like Leo, like Agatho, like Hadrian, there's no doubt whatsoever that they were proclaiming papal infallibility in very explicit terms. And yet, far from rejecting that, the Eastern Fathers are still praising the orthodoxy of the See of Rome. I mean, St. Sophronius of Jerusalem, he says you can wander to, you know, the farthest ends of the earth, Right. And you will, you know, if you come once you come across Rome, you will see the heart of the Orthodox faith. And so given that, when you look at Rome in the first millennium, you would expect to see mm -hmm. Eastern Orthodoxy. If I'm an Orthodox Christian, right, I would expect Rome to be the most Eastern Orthodox <laughs> diocese in all of Christendom. Right. <laughs> and yet when I look at Rome and I look at what is she actually teaching about herself, this is supposed to be the pinnacle of Orthodox, mm -hmm. you know, Christianity. It's you know, papacy from top to bottom. And it's, this goes back, like you said, there, the Rome has always claimed this. I mean, what's said at Vatican I is essentially a, you know, the logical conclusion of what she's been claiming since at least the third Actually, century. Actually, it's a truncated, explicitly. it's a truncated well, And the thing is... Because <laughs> whatever they were claiming in the, yes, in the third and fourth in century was actually way. way more blown um, out of proportion than Vatican I was. <laughs> so. Yes, it was. And I mean, on top of that, I should also mention uh, here the issue of the filioque which played a large um, role in my conversion to Catholicism was because, you know, uh, Seraphim Hamilton made an excellent video, I think. If you want to know, like, the Orthodox rejection of Filioque, he made an excellent video on his channel about that. And he cites Vladimir Lasky, who I think hit the nail on the head, where he says that the Filioque, the doctrine that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, that that was the sole dogmatic grounds, the sole dogmatic justification for the schism between East and the West. Everything else, the papacy you know, Immaculate Conception, whatever you want to say, mm -hmm. that all came later. It started with the Filioque. It started with those in the East saying that not only was the insertion of the Filioque into the creed wrong, canonically, a canonical crime, but it was a violation of the Catholic faith. It was a violation of the apostolic faith. And 
you know, for a long time, I didn't really look into the filioque debate. But, you know, eventually I decided, like, okay, I'm going to actually seriously look into this. And so I started, like, you know, reading, like, St. Augustine. I thought there might be a way to read Augustine in a non-filioquist Catholic way. There's not. <laughs> Uh, there's just it, it's so, we're here to tell you rest be we're assured, here to tell listeners. you guys. It's, <laughs> yeah it's not there's no way like augustine very clearly taught the filioque and it wasn't just him though because augustine's theology was inherited by all of his successors and even goes before him i mean the filioque goes back to people like tertullian yeah. and didimus the blind like people even in eastern uh mm -hmm. trinitarian thought and it's even picked up in at the Alexandrian school with St. Athanasius and St. Cyril very clearly teaching that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And like in, a, in terms of hypostatic procession, not in terms of energetic procession, which would have been unheard of um, right. in the first millennium, this idea of like an energetic procession. Mm. Um, and you see that in Augustine, you see that in St. Hilary of Poitiers, you see that in Ambrose and Leo and Gregory, pretty much the entire Western tradition is professing the filioque. And that's why when I started reading about the Council of Florence, and I started reading about some of the Greek delegates there, such as Cardinal Bessarion of Nicaea, right? He was a Greek delegate who, you know, he really believed in the Eastern Orthodox faith, but he went to the Council of Florence with an open mind, and he, he heard the testimony from the Latin fathers, and he's like, like, wow, like, you know, these are our fathers mm -hmm. too. Like, there is no Greek East and Latin West. Like, he's like, the fathers have to stand together. And so for him, even just the Latin fathers universally teaching the filioque was enough for him to say, yeah, I guess this is part of the Catholic faith. And, and that's what I was really coming to see is like, for me to justify being Orthodox, I would have to say that like all of these saints on the calendar are just heretics, right? Because keep in mind, I mean, the filioque, that, that justifies a schism that's lasts a thousand years, mm -hmm. right? That's what it's supposed to do. Yet if it goes back to the fourth or even the third century, like what, what, really point is there in defending this idea of ecclesial infallibility or the consensus right. of the fathers you know because even if you could fall back and say well the eastern fathers rejected it well number one i don't really think they did like you know even maximus i don't think can be read as rejecting the filioque but even if they did i mean you're just pitting fathers against fathers which you know for the for the fathers of the council of florence they would have they saw that as an overthrow of the catholic faith that, that would have been the end mm -hmm. of christianity right there if these fathers were contradicting each other on a matter so significant like the filioque mm -hmm. and i was really coming to sympathize with someone like cardinal Basaria and realize like you know if i was in his shoes i probably would go the same direction like i would not be like mark of ephesus ephesus who really seemed to be trying to like force this contradiction in the fathers i'm like why would you be trying to force this contradiction just to justify a schism it seemed very just not of the holy spirit to me well interesting so wow yeah um okay so these are the issues that you're working through as an orthodox uh are you a reader or wait what are you in the church then you're a reader um, i was i was not okay. ordained to any minor minor clergy okay. i was just okay. an altar server yeah. so um now take us through the more subjective, um, like how you eventually two things <laughs> try to accomplish this, will you? Um, so number one, <laughs> yes, you're starting to see that the, the, the house of cards is starting to crumble for you. Um, however, we have the anomaly of the Francis pontificate at the same time happening, which has been a lot of fodder for Orthodox, mm -hmm. you know, uh, they're having a, they're, they're having a nice time. Um, so Holy father. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's, what's, that's, what's currently <laughs> going on. Did you really just do that? Dan? 
Um, <laughs> so they're, <clears throat> yeah. So so that's going on. But then also, um, tell us how you come to like I don't know meet Father Father Tom. So people should know that you actually go to our parish now. Um, you are um, mm-hmm. uh, you you read at our parish and serve lector and yeah. serving and. Um, and that was all just by like, dude, I had no idea. I, to be honest with you, like we were friends on Facebook and like, you know, talking Eric Ybarra threads and all these kinds of things. Um, but I had no idea yeah. you even lived in Illinois, let alone that, <laughs> <laughs> let alone that yeah. like you were talking to Father Tom yeah. um, about the potential of becoming Catholic. So um, why don't you take us through now? Yeah. Like your way yeah. out of the Orthodox Church dealing with, say, yeah, some of the controversy of the Francis Pontificate while also talking with Father Tom and sort of moving towards uh, Catholicism. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. A lot to say there again. Um, but I guess to start, like, obviously, yeah. as I was, like, moving more towards a Catholic understanding, like, you know, I was still, like, of this, a similar mindset to how I was when I first became Orthodox. Like, I'm like, I do not want to become Catholic. Like, on the one hand, I've only had poor experiences, uh, you know, in, like, real-life parishes. And on the other hand, you know, you have this Pope who's, like, doing all kinds of weird things that I don't even, like... Like what, like this issue about like mm. the death penalty, you know, is he, he's now oh. allowing adulterers to go to communion now? Like what, that. like what is, you know, I don't even, I, I, you know, I, I never really was looking into that stuff at the beginning of my journey to Catholicism. I was so focused on these like East West issues, this stuff of the fathers and the Bible and all this stuff. And so now that I'm starting to take Catholicism more seriously, yeah, I start looking more into, you know, what's going on with Pope Francis and stuff like that. And honestly, I'll, there was a time where I was, even looking into Protestantism because I really like didn't no, want ben? to become Catholic. Like, oh. I was like, <laughs> I was looking, I was like, is like, cause like I, it seemed to me like you know, orthodoxy is not a viable option. Like, and it really came down to this, that, yeah, even if Catholicism was false, orthodoxy was still false. Like the filioque being true, like that puts orthodoxy out of the running, right? No matter what Pope Francis says or does, like he could, do anything. They would not change reality that the, in the first millennium, the dogma, the doctrine of the papacy, in its core, as it logically would progress at Vatican I, was affirmed by both East and West. That fact will not be changed by anything Pope Francis says or does. And the truthfulness, the fact that the filioque was taught by the consensus of the fathers of both East and West, that, you know, that fact will also not be changed by anything Pope Francis says or does. And so I realized, like, okay, no matter what I think about the modern state of the Catholic Church, you know, I just know I can't in good conscience remain Orthodox. And so even if that means I have to like become Protestant now or something, like I just So that's interesting because then you're, you're saying so, yeah, the there was a edifice time. of the church's indefectibility or infallibility is crumbling uh, because of the claims of the Orthodox, saying the unanimous consent of the fathers, like that is authoritative, right? So like if it's, if it's not, yes. even if it's not Catholicism, right, then it still wouldn't be orthodoxy, you're saying, because there was this unanimous consent, and then all of a sudden they, they contradicted it. And, and I think that's an interesting point, yeah. because um, in my own journey, too, with, like, Catholicism, a lot of the, um, let's say, the peculiar doctrines of the Catholic Church that, that the Orthodox East doesn't share, um, none of those doctrines, though, uh, contradicted anything that was written in the Fathers, but you do have these things in orthodoxy where, like, that's a contradiction of the fathers, like the whole rebaptism thing, like, or mm-hmm. divorce and remarriage, right, or contraception, um, like these sorts yeah. of things, like, or, or the ecclesiology issue, like you said, you know, like with with Petrine succession, 
So it's like those are all you're contradicting the fathers, and so now you're you're in the game of cherry picking which fathers you like and which ones you don't. Um, which is a Protestant thing, isn't it? exactly, so exactly. You might as well so be exactly. So now I do see I do see the the the, yeah. the logic um, with where you're going. So yeah, so go anyway. Go, yeah, go that's yeah. interesting. Continue. Yeah, no, and I, you know, at this time, like, this is like maybe like a year, two years ago, something like that, like, I actually, I started making, like, really intelligent Protestant friends who, you know, really were, like, challenging me on certain issues, you know, related to, like, apostolic succession and all this stuff, like, really pushing me to, like, know what it is I believe, and I, and I was open, you know, for, like, the first time, I was really open to Protestantism being true, because, you know, I, I knew that I really couldn't be Orthodox, but I also really didn't want to become Catholic because of all the weird stuff happening in the Catholic Church. And so I was like, okay, this really does seem to be the route I'm being pushed down. Um, because, yeah, if I'm going to be Orthodox, I'm just going to be doing my own interpretation of the Fathers, not really having a lot of authority to do so anyways. So, you know, Protestantism does, doesn't seem very far off, which, you know, I'm not trying to say that, like, Orthodoxy is, like, right, Eastern right, Protestantism right. or something yeah, like yeah. that. Like, no, no I, I wouldn't want to say that. But, like, from a, like... You know, from like the bird's eye perspective, when you trace out certain, you know, belief systems to their logical conclusions, I do believe that is where you end up. You end up having to say that the church, you have no defense of the church's mm -hmm. indefectibility. You know, if you say that, you know, the filioque is wrong, well, I guess all the fathers were wrong about this. And I guess, you know, if the papacy is wrong, then I guess at least three ecumenical councils taught heresy, you know. Mm -hmm. And so it's like at that point, you've kind of thrown out the infallibility of the church. And you might as well, yeah, look into Protestantism. Did, did you? Did, so did you so, yeah, throw all this at Father Tom's lap? <laughs> oh, no. he's probably oh boy, this is gonna be a well, long this, night. This was, <laughs> you know, this is like for me. I feel like I'm the kind of person who, like, I don't have other people resolve these issues for me. I have to resolve them myself, and I do it in mm. dialogue with other people. Mm. So, like, my relations with other people and like talking about this kind of stuff. It's purely so that I can help myself come to better know this. So I was talking to like, you know, Eric Ybarra and I uh, became like pretty good friends on Facebook. And we, you know, I would like ask him questions and we'd have like phone calls and send voice messages back and forth. And I also have like really good reformed friends who, you know, we'd meet uh, for like Bible study. We'd get together. We'd have very long discussions long into the night um, about these things. And, um, and yeah, so I was kind of just like going at my own pace, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I envy way. it because, you know, Steve, you'll recall <laughs> those days in our cohort mm -hmm. in graduate school, long into the night, mm -hmm. Protestants, Orthodox, you know, whoever, everybody from every stripe there, and you're just hitting things off each mm -hmm. other. It's a, that's a very nice place very to be. Very formational. And that's, that's, that's the yeah. purpose. That's the purpose of dialogue. Like, that's the purpose of even doing, even podcasts, like, that's why I've always been not so interested personally in apologetics. It turns me off. Um, that's why, like, I, I, I think we posted before on our own page where we said, like, you know, history, um, history and apologetics are often acquaintances, but rarely friends. Because um, I, I feel like, like mm. that sort of like strong proof texty apologetics is like, you're not getting anywhere here. You know, like we need to go back to the mud, right? Like, mm -hmm. I, like I hope that nobody has listened to this episode so far and thought that like orthodoxy doesn't have a case against Catholicism. Like they totally do. <laughs> you know, like, they, they, they totally have a strong oh, yeah. case oh, yeah. against 
Catholicism as Catholicism has a strong case against them. And that's why you have a schism in the, in the first place. Nothing is, is easy. So going back, I, I like the honesty of this, of going back and wrestling with it and having good, yeah, dialogue partners to bounce things off each other. And like, dude, me and my best friend ended up, like he became Orthodox, I became Catholic. Right. And so like, like literally we did everything together, like our whole conversion with Dan as well. Like our whole journey was together, 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 together. And then boom, like he went to orthodoxy and I went to Catholicism. So like these are not easy issues um, yeah. and they're not clear cut. And, and I like that you were you were, have, no. had honest dialogue partners in that instead of just like kind of the mudslinging apologetics, you know. Yeah. Yes. So go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, it was. No, yeah, no, that's that's a good point. I, yeah, I, like I said, like, you know, I'm, I'm talking about all the reasons why I became convinced that the Orthodox faith is not viable and the Catholic faith is viable. I, you know, the, the Orthodoxy definitely mm -hmm. has its own case to present of, and there were certain issues such as, you know, Pope Vigilius and the Fifth Ecumenical Council, I would say, is probably the biggest historical yeah. challenge to the Catholic doctrines of the papacy. Um, but, but like I was saying, like, even at that, like, at most, let's say Pope Vigilius situation falsifies Vatican I. That, once again, just undermines the infallibility of the mm. first millennium tradition because you still have the problem of Agatho's letter and, you know, and Hadrian and all these Eastern and Western saints teaching the divine institution of the papacy. At that point, you've just falsified everybody, you know. And one of the way that I was looking at it is it seemed like Catholicism had the ability to absorb all of these difficulties and all of these mm. problems in a way that Orthodoxy didn't. Orthodoxy essentially had to edit out the, pap the papal DNA of her, of her identity. Whereas in Catholicism, we could keep that papal DNA in our ecclesiology and just kind of hold it in tension with these historical cases, with one where I think we're experiencing right now with you know, a, a wayward pope who seems to be doing things that we maybe wouldn't expect God to allow a pope to do, um, but who he is. Mm. Uh, allowing to do those things and uh yes, and you know as i was dialoguing with yeah as i was uh dialoguing with my protestant friends you know they they were making very good cases but you know for me it kept coming back to these fundamental issues about apostolic succession authority like who actually has the ability to preach the gospel who has that authority to say i speak in the name mm -hmm. of jesus christ like that's a bold thing to say that i am preaching in the name of jesus christ right now like who actually gets to claim that and it was actually largely um St. Francis de Sales in his work, The Catholic Controversy, that I think was kind of like the, the, the nail in the coffin for my flirtation mm. with Protestantism, where I, I read that and I was just like, I mean, if, if you read just the first section where he talks about the mission of the church and how like the reformers, essentially what they were doing is they were trying to create a new ecclesiastical mission, like essentially ex nihilo, because they weren't claiming that they were sent specially from God and they weren't sent from the ordinary mission of the church. So... St. Francis asks, he's like, you know, who oh sent you? Like, you know, where, where did you, you know, where, where were you told, who told you you could preach these doctrines and administer these sacraments in this way? And so I was like, okay, you know, obviously there's more to it than just that. But that was what really made me realize, like, okay, I can't go to Orthodoxy. I can't go to Protestantism. And so at the end of the day, I'm just left with, yeah, I have someone like Pope Francis I have to deal with, you know, every, every Thursday he's out. I, I gotta say, yeah. I gotta say, I, I'm, I'm absolutely <laughs> loving this. I'm like sitting back and loving this because it's like, you're going in directions. I, I did not think this was going to go. So Filioque Filioque is actually what's bringing you to, the, to Catholicism. Yeah. And you're talking about Francis de Sales. I'm like, what yeah, is, what is happening? Um, these are, these are, yeah, these aren't things I expected to hear. Uh, well, That's especially awesome. on the Filioque front, because it's, it, we're, we're living in a time too, where, um, 
the West has this tendency to uh, to walk away from the filioque, or at least walk away from like a full throated defense of it, <clears throat> and kind of just be like, well, you mm-hmm. know. <laughs> but like then you go back and read like in the West though, like the theologians who are arguing for it, and like no, they're they're like no, this is the truth. Like this is the truth, you know. So it's interesting that yes. you 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 do have those those two parties in the Western Church today too, where it's like some are like no, the filioque is like true. Um, so it, it is, it is, it is required belief. Right. And then you have other people who are saying like, well, no, it's yes. a Western development. Um, you know, and they, try, and they say it's a, and actually, if we just say through yeah. the sun that, you know, it's, it's solved. So, mm. yeah. Weren't there, Steve, weren't there, weren't there Anglican churches that we were going to that would put brackets. it in parentheses? Yeah. They put it in brackets. Yeah, brackets um, so. if I could yeah, say ahead. something to that real quick, um, I would say actually that, yeah, there's this idea that you can just say through the sun and then that just resolves any, everything. But the, the problem is, you know, the way that the Council of Blackerne, which was the orthodox response to the Council of Lyons, which was the first council to like dogmatize the filioque for Catholicism, they specifically condemned the proposition that the Holy Spirit proceeds through the sun in terms of his hypostasis, in terms of his person, in terms of like receiving the divine essence. So rather, when you see Orthodox uh, writers in the, in the medieval era using the phrase through the sun, they mean something other than the hypostatic procession of the Holy Spirit. And yet when you read like someone like St. Maximus, when he's saying through the sun, in my view, it's very clear that he's talking about the hypostatic mm, procession. What, what makes you think that? And it, um, it, it just goes back to like, what is the Trinity? I mean, I think a lot of people, especially in the Orthodox sphere, they get so caught up in Trinitarian thinking that they kind of forget what the Trinity is. They forget that the Trinity is one God, three persons, and the only distinctions between those persons that we can rationally defend are relations of opposition. And so to speak of a divine attribute of the Holy Spirit that's different from what makes him his person is essentially to posit some kind of composition in God. It's to posit that there's this other thing besides hypostatic properties, you know, this kind of energetic property that can somehow uniquely belong to the Holy Spirit, that he proceeds from the Father alone in his hypostasis, but he proceeds through the Son in terms of, like, his energy. Well, I thought the essence and energy and person, those are all inseparable, right? So how can you separate out these different parts of the Trinity? It's just we're kind of outside the realm of rationality here. Yeah, it's it's just it it's not very coherent. Like it can sound good and look good on paper. Like it looks like a nice, neat, elegant solution of making these fine distinctions between different kinds of procession. But when you actually work out the philosophical math, um, it just doesn't hmm. add up. And I think if you want a really good treatment of that, I think Eric Yabar's mm-hmm. book on the filioque, um, he has a really good treatment that kind of goes into the details of this idea of the energetic procession. And there's also a very good video on YouTube by uh, this YouTuber named Duong called uh, something like the Church Fathers Taught the Filioque, which that is a mm. very good video. Mm. It's a little polemical, <laughs> but it's not actually okay. that polemical. He, he can actually re-edit it to make it less polemical. <laughs> so it's a, it's a very good video. <laughs> that reminds me of uh, I, Lancelot yeah. in, um, in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. He's like, sorry, sorry. See, I just get carried away. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yes, um, okay, so now you... What do you do? So you, how did you get into contact with Father Tom? How did you? What happened there, dude? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, I'd like to, it's interesting. I would like to actually. I haven't, even though you're serving alongside me, I haven't heard like your encounter with Saint Mary's, <laughs> your encounter with Father Tom. 
you know, that whole. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so it's interesting. So backing up a little bit, this is like maybe going back like six, seven, eight months ago. So I, I was in a Protestant campus ministry in college and, uh, and I had, a a friend in that ministry who after graduation, she, uh, had, a, had a son. And, uh, even though she was evangelical, she had like this intuition to like have him baptized, um, and in the Catholic church, cause she was mm. raised Catholic. And this is kind of like, as I'm making my own journey, you know, towards the Catholic church. And, uh, and so that just kind of like, uh, you know, I started talking to her again. Cause like I was starting to talk to her about like the Catholic faith and I was kind of like in a weird position. Cause like I am Orthodox, like going to Orthodox liturgy and like almost like trying to convince her to become Catholic. <laughs> you know, it's like a weird, it's like a weird, just do, yeah, just do I, I ain't never I been there. Just, I ain't just been there. do what I can't. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was kind of a, a weird situation um, because, yeah, she was coming to be very disillusioned with evangelicalism and I was, you know, starting to become disillusioned with orthodoxy. And so it was just kind of like a natural progression towards the Catholic faith. And I was and so I actually initially found St. Mary's because I was looking for a Catholic parish for her to go to because like I, you know, I figured like if she's going to be Catholic, I didn't want her to like nah. just go to some random Nova Soto parish around town and so that's i think i i asked eric yabara i was i well, I was more just like complaining to him like partially about like you know not being able to find catholic parishes partially for me partially for my friend um and so he like just posted on facebook he's like what are good catholic parishes in the chicagoland Dude, area I commented and i think on you that. steven are <laughs> yeah you commented on that that was for me oh my goodness <laughs> and that was i think i commented on it yeah, too so, Probably, probably. Yeah. Eric, he posted that because of me. Um, oh and gosh. so then he, I think he's the one who sent me, uh, St. Mary's information who, and he got it from you. How so that's crazy. how I was put into contact with. Wow. Com. Yeah. That's awesome. You're welcome. And so and, you're, uh, yeah, we got you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so I know you, you were meeting with him quite often, quite frequently. And I know Father Tom's approach. Father, uh, Father Tom's approach is go keep thinking. He's very pastoral. Keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, but keep praying. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. yeah, no, it was. And I, I, I do want to emphasize that, like, this was not a purely intellectual journey for me. Like, in, in the course of the years that I, um, that I was, like, researching these issues, I ended up uh, dating a Catholic girl. And she, uh, she actually introduced me to a lot of, like, Catholic spirituality stuff. Um, such as like mm. St. Therese of Lisieux and like her spirituality and like, you know, really like showing me like that there is a lot of spiritual riches in the Catholic church in like terms of like devotionals in terms of like her, like even just like the moral theology of the church, I think is very spiritually formative. Like, like my, my ex-girlfriend is the one who red pilled me on not lying. Like that lying is like always wrong. And so like, I like stopped lying and that like had like a big impact in my spiritual life and stuff like that. And, uh, and so part of my, like spiritual journey was, uh, yeah, was like reading about Catholic saints, praying the rosary. I actually, I went to, uh, there was an adoration chapel right near my, my, uh, college dorm. And I, I went there actually very frequently, uh, when I was in college and, and I, I remember I was joking with one of my friends, I'm like, oh yeah, I just went to adoration chapel thinking nothing was going to happen because I went there. <laughs> um, just this Eastern Orthodox guy in an adoration chapel. And, um, <laughs> and I actually, so yeah, so I, I yeah, so I uh, I was meeting with Father Tom. I don't know how many times we actually met. I met with him for the first time, just kind of like explaining everything to him, like where I'm at. And he's just like, yeah, you know, just 
pray about it, think about it. Like I, I wasn't going there like expecting him right. to like answer all my questions. I knew that my questions were things I had to answer for myself. I was just looking to like, you know, get connected with a real life Catholic parish. And then I, yeah, I started attending like Catholic mass more. I went to St. Mary's for mass uh, a couple times and I, I really, you know, enjoyed it. I, I liked the Eastern atmosphere there. I felt, you know, the, the smell of incense, you know, makes me feel very at home um, in a, in a church. And, um, and yeah, and then I was, yeah, praying the rosary and I actually, so I found out that, uh, at a certain point when I had decided to become Catholic, I, I told my, my uh, ex-girlfriend that I was becoming Catholic and, um, and she, and I, I told her that I was planning on becoming Catholic on the feast of St. Therese because, you know, her spirituality just like meant a lot to me in that whole process. And she told me that like back in like the winter of that year, that she had like prayed a prayer of consecration of me to St. <laughs> Therese, that I would like become Catholic. Wow, um, that's, that's and great. So well, and and Father Tom has a great devotion to St. Therese yeah, as well. And we have a, a shrine to her in our church. Mm. Yes, yeah, she's she's awesome. And actually the National Shrine of St. Therese is like right near my house. So I, I spent a lot of time there over the summer uh, just visiting there. So, so I say all that just to emphasize that like, you know, this was also like a very like mm -hmm. spiritual mm -hmm. journey for me. It wasn't just purely intellectual and that's really what i needed like you know i felt like right you know at the beginning of my christian journey i was very intellectually in tune with the catholic faith but spiritually i just wasn't wasn't there and it took like that long process of god bringing me through the orthodox church exposing me to like real liturgy real spirituality and like kind of like preparing my heart to like accept the fullness of the catholic faith in in all of her riches from the intellectual tradition, the spiritual tradition. All yeah, of I, I, I yeah. even myself, I would say I'm still in process, my, like, um, of, of uh, fully appreciating Catholic, specifically Roman Catholic, like Latin Catholic spirituality, um, because I was, mm -hmm. I was brought, really just through my Christian journey a lot with influence from the East and it's more natural. Like, I don't know. It's like more natural, uh, to me to like gravitate towards like the Jesus prayer as opposed to the rosary. Like not that they're in conflict or anything, but you know what I mean? I just, I would prefer the Jesus prayers, you know? Right. And so, um, icons like, you know, instead of statues, like, so it's just like a lot of that. Um, but, but even just like a yeah. lot of the, um, you know, the, the stories of like the Eastern monks, um, that's like a huge one, you know, with like mm -hmm. all their advice, like father, you know, give me a blessing or something, you know, and then they, they give this like awesome <laughs> like one liner or something like just the whole, um, uh, the whole thing of spiritual yeah. fatherhood, um, prostration. So all of that is, is still very natural to me. So even myself, like uh, trying to like really relearn, like, the Catholic way of doing things, I guess you could say is it's hard. It is. It's like, it's difficult. And you do feel like, yeah. why do I have to choose like, between these two things? You know, like, um, which you don't, but, but yes. you know, I'm, a, I'm only one guy. I can't go to both churches on Sunday, <laughs> <laughs> yes, but exactly. no, I, I, I really like that. Um, when you came into St. Mary's, the building also like spoke to you because it, it, it does have an Eastern vibe to it. Um, the Eastern incense, yes. I love the way that at our parish, we do the prayers of the people, um, where it's the deacon, like facing the altar and he chants them. And they even use the business, like some of the Byzantine yes. Catholic like prayers at that point. Um, so that probably like hit home for you. And then, and then, yeah, also having this, 
um, devotion to St. Therese. And then over there is like the shrine. It must have all just like kind of spoke to you. Can you speak to that? Like when you first walked into the building? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, well, the St. Mary's is like Byzantine architecture and, you know, all, all of its glory, you know, lots of Eastern icons all over the place and, you know, incense and domes. And yeah, obviously, I mean, well, <laughs> domes. Gold yes. Leaf. My Orthodox parish didn't have a dome. So. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was no, it was, it was great. I, I honestly I don't think there could have been like a better um, like Latin parish I could have gone to um, to be exposed to, you know, Catholic liturgy as it's supposed to be done. And so, you yeah, know, it, it was it was very a natural transition mm -hmm. to me. I feel like the last two years of renovations at the church were all for you because it was Father Tom's <laughs> mission. I'm, I'm serious. It's so funny because Father Tom's mission over the last few years, as, as we've been doing the preservation fund and re restoring the church, has he wanted to embrace the Byzantine Romanesque architecture more and more. Like that was his stated goal. I want to bring in the East. And so when you walk in the vestibule of our church, on the left side are all the Eastern uh, saints and the Eastern icons, right? And then on the, on the right side are all Western mm -hmm. saints in icons, mm -hmm. right? So bringing together the two traditions into one church, um, that, that was a stated goal of his. Like, I want both to live together here. Um, and so to see yes. his vision and then to see an actual person coming into that church mm -hmm. uh, um, and have that effect on you, it's like, wow, you're... Hit, that's what I love about Father Tom, honestly. Mm -hmm. he, he has this way about him. Yeah. He wants to appeal um, in many different ways to people, and he, he sees that building as, as an evangelistic tool, mm -hmm. truly. That's what a yes. church is. Um, and to see it come to fruition in your life is, is, is really something. Plus, it's so beautiful to be able to just say the come and see. You know, because like, the Orthodox always say that that's that's kind of how they do evangelism. You know, it's like come and see, and like you you couldn't you can't always do that as a Catholic, unfortunately, because if you are at your local parish, yeah. you know, that's just kind of like a not even like a bad Novus Ordo, but just kind of like your run of the mill one. It's like you know, uh, you almost like don't want to invite someone. I hate to say that, but you 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 do. You're like I don't know if that's really yes. going to do much. You know, I, and and that's a horrible thing to say. It's this is you know. Don't take this and run with it, people. Um, but there, there is something about, like, yes, how the Mass is celebrated and, and, and how the faith is presented in both of its lungs, breathing together, like, at St. Mary's, that you can you can have that confidence of saying, like, no, literally, yeah, just come to Mass. Like, I, I can't sit here and try to convince you, you know, if you're thinking your own way through mm -hmm. it and I'm thinking my own way through it, just let's just go to Mass together, you know? And, and because that's what Dan did to me, honestly, because he, he was like, dude, just come out to Mass. And we went out there. And I've said this in a previous episode, but then my wife looked over at me and she's like, what have we been doing? You know, because like, this is it, you know, this is it. <laughs> um, yes. But no, that's great. Is there anything else you want to add then to to the to your journey that we haven't, that we maybe like skipped or, or anything important, important step along the way? Are you nervous about serving during Holy Week? <laughs> <laughs> looking forward I'm going to put you to work for Holy Week. <laughs> okay. Look forward to it. <laughs> yes. Um, I think, I mean, yeah, that about covers it all. I mean, yeah, just to, like, tie it together, like, you know, I like St. Mary's bringing together the Eastern and Western traditions because that really is what the Catholic faith actually does in a way that, you know, for all of its beauty and glory, the Eastern Orthodox faith just simply does not have the ability to do mm. that. And, you know, mm. and like you were saying, like, yeah, if you go to local Novus Ordo Mass, it's not going to be really anything spectacular but you know that is not the substance of the faith right the way that we outwardly present the faith it's very important and i you know i i 
very much care about liturgy and beauty and all that. But at the end of the day, it's the substance of the faith that really matters. And, and you know, if, if I was just going based on exterior beauty, I mean, I have no doubt I would want to stay at my Orthodox parish. And, you know, and to this day, like, you know, if, if they join back communion with Rome, like as much as I love St. Mary's, mm -hmm. I'm going back there. <laughs> you know, that's uh, what, what would happen. Um, but at the end of the day, we have to remember, like, what really matters. What really matters is the faith that our Lord revealed to his apostles and the mission that he gave to them to preach the gospel unto the ends of the earth. And, you know, that mission has been given to men who sometimes don't exercise it very well, but that doesn't change the fact that they are the ones who have that mission. Mm -hmm. What Even if that really pains us sometimes, you know, even if it doesn't look like it, even if it looks like these other people have it more than, than us, we have to remember, you know, it's ultimately about Jesus. You know, he's the reason we do any of this. He's the reason we care about any of this liturgy, any of this stuff, you know, and if we're not doing it for him, then there's no reason to be doing it at all. And that really is the ultimate reason why I, you know, became Catholic and going to stay Catholic, you know, no matter how bad things get. It's because, you know, this is the church that Christ founded. This is the faith he handed on. And this is, you know, the faith he wants all men to embrace. And yeah. Well, Amen. that's that's yeah. I can't. Add, I'm not adding anything to that. <laughs> that's, that's where we'll stop. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well, thanks, Ben, for coming on and and for sharing your story. It really is. Uh, that's a really interesting story. I, and we did not even talk about this beforehand. So this was all coming at me uh, uh, live, live in front of all of you. Um, yeah. So yeah. why don't you go ahead and tell um, the folks here how they can follow your work? Where can we follow you? I know that um, one time. Hey, could, can I, I just say you, caveat? I just want to. I just want to. I just want to commend you, Ben, on on um, wise beyond your years. I mean, yeah. when I was, tw you're twenty three, twenty two, twenty two. Yeah. Okay. So remember in the sacristy, I said, I said, oh, our deacon's about my our age, and I'm thinking, wait a minute, <laughs> I'm a I'm a heck of a lot older than Ben is, right? So I would just, um, yeah. um I, I was not there when I was twenty two, and. Um, and I just, I, I envy it. I, I think you're on the right path and, and, um, I love you, brother. Yeah. It's, it's been good to get to know you and continue to get to know you. So, um, I commend you for it. Yeah. It's fantastic. Thank you very much. Yeah. All by God's grace. So how, how can, how can our folks follow you if they want to, um, get either get in touch with you or follow your work? Yeah. I mean, if you, if you want to get in touch with me, like you want to talk to me, I'd say add me on Facebook. It's just Ben Bollinger. Look me up. You'll see a picture that looks like me wearing a cap and gown. Um, and uh, yeah, you can add me there if you like want to talk to me. Um, or if you want to follow my work, I mostly write on my Substack. So that is benjaminjohn.substack.com. Um, I just recently, I, I write a lot about like just, I just kind of like write about whatever's like on my mind at that given point in time. And so I recently just wrote an article about uh, the epistle of James's teaching on justification and comparing that with, you know, certain Protestant interpretations of James and comparing that to their view of Romans and stuff like that. And then I also wrote an article on the Immaculate Conception of Mary, um, kind of going more into like biblical theology. So, so I do a lot of like biblical theology, historical theology. And then you can also find my YouTube channel, also called Benjamin John, um, where I just, once again, make videos about whatever I kind of feel like. I just recently put out a video about this excellent book that I highly recommend everyone read by Father Jean-Baptiste Saint-Germain and Saint-Claude de la Colombera called Trustful Surrender to Divine Providence. Like life-changing book for me. It's just amazing. And I, I recently made a video on it, um, which was based on an article I wrote on my Substack. if you want to check that out. 
Um, and so, yeah, that's the main way that you can find what I'm up to. Fantastic. Well, uh, to the rest of you, be sure to subscribe to the channel if you are enjoying the content. Um, a big thank you for uh, Ben being on today. I hope that you all enjoyed it as much as we did. And uh, be sure to tune in to the rest of our first 500-year series because we'll be picking that uh, right back up. I believe our next uh, our, the next step in our journey should be some heretics. So I think we're going to start with I, yeah, think, we I think we're starting with Marcion um, with the next one. So so be on the lookout for that. And uh, yeah, thanks everybody for for tuning in.